We'll be shifting to today's scripture reading, which is from Philippians 1, 27 through 30, and I'll be reading from the ESV version. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Um, welcome, guys. I guess people that are staying in the lobby has to stay in the lobby. Um, because of the capacity, but can we just turn to left and right and say hello to each other, wave. Uh, you know, if you're close enough, introduce yourself. We'll begin there. Let me set up real quick. All right. Um, if you're just joining us, we've been walking through the book of Philippians last several weeks together as a church. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians till the advent of this year so that's a couple more months so get comfortable if you have never read philippians it'll take you about 25 minutes to read through the whole book i know it's that's unbelievable 25 minutes you can do it uh you can do it every week and I encourage you to do that um you know philippians is 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 a book to us but it's a letter in original form uh, this guy named paul who's pretty famous he wrote probably more than half of the new testament scripture it's one of his letters he sent to a dear church of his in a city called in Philippi. And he's writing to a group of believers who are facing challenges. He's, he's facing challenges because he's in prison. He doesn't know whether, what's going to happen with his own life. He's writing to a group of people, believers, who are also facing their own challenges. And we're going to soon see that there was, there was a little bit of division in the church of Philippi. But also the intense external persecution that they're experiencing by living in a pagan city like Philippi. And really the primary message that Paul wants to give us, give the audience, uh, is that through your difficulties and challenge, challenges and struggles, uh, continue to practice joy. That's why we titled this series, Practice of Joy. And today as it was read by our brother Daniel, we're going to be in the final section of chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, open it up to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 27. And really, we're going to land in verse 27 and spend the next 25 minutes to 30 minutes in verse 27. One verse. Um, and 27 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So seven Greek words. Mono, axios, ho, euangelion, ho, Christos, poly, theomai. Mono, axios, ho, euangelion, ho, Christos, poly, theomai. This is important. You know, I know New Testament scholars that have spent... 15, 20 years, all of their career studying these seven words. To live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And here's why I think it's worth our time to spend all of 
next 30 minutes in these seven words. One, this phrase, living and walking in the manner of Christ or manner of the calling that you have received, is not only found in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, it's actually also found in the letter that he sent to church in Ephesus. In Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 4, 1, Paul says the same thing. After explaining the gospel and the implication and the gift that we have received through the gospel, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received in Christ. So this means these seven words we find in verse 27 of our passage is not a message for a particular group at a particular time, but it's a message for all believers, including you and I, who, who's reading this 2,000-some years later. And the second reason, in our passage, Paul gives this hint. Paul begins this final section of chapter 1 with this preposition, only. This, this, this word in Greek is monon. What it literally means, whatever happens, this is it. If you fall asleep now, if, 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 if you are going to lose attention, this is one thing you got to remember. Paul is giving us indication. He's marking the importance of what he's about to say. So he's telling the, the, the church of Philippi, the Christians, to gather around and pay, pay close attention to what he is about to write. So when he says, only... Live your life or only conduct yourselves in the manner of the gospel. This is, this is it. This is the most important thing. So first, the call to conduct yourself. The Greek word is polytheomai. Everyone say polytheomai. Not very difficult. Poly is where we get the word city. right? And theomai is this imperative that Paul is giving the Christians in Philippi to behave as the person of the city, this idea of citizenship. So what Paul is saying is, make sure you embrace your privilege and your responsibility of being a citizen of a city. What's really interesting is this imperative, polytheomai, only shows up in his letter to the church in Philippi. Not in his letter to Corinthian church, not in churches in Ephesus, but only to the church Philippi. Why? Many scholars assume it's because being a citizen of Philippi came with great privileges. Right? You see, Philippi was a colony state of the Rome, the superpower at the time. And which meant if you were born in the city of Philippi, you were born, you were given, immediately given Roman citizenship. So many believers in Philippi not only enjoy this great privilege and protection of being Roman citizens, it was a major part of their identity. It was something that they're very proud of. You may have come out of this wonderful school, a wonderful university, or, or, or have you ever met New Yorkers? They're very proud of being, from, being in New York. You ask, are you from New York? I'm from New York. And they tell you all these you know, awesome things about New York. There's this pride that Philippians had about being part of Philippi because it gave them Roman citizenship. So Paul, being fully aware of this dynamic, he presses into this idea of citizenship. And Paul says, your citizenship is not simply to the city of Philippi. Actually, it's a dual citizenship. 
right? You are a Roman, but now you are also a Christian. And so Paul says that should change, radically change and challenge the way you carry yourselves in all manners, not just in the church, but also outside of the church, not only in this city, but in other cities as well. So, so polytheomai, behave or, 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 or know that, that you have responsibility and privilege of being part of the city. Now onto the worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel, right? The word worthy here in Greek is oxios. Okay, this sounds like a lecture, but I have a point. Guys, follow with me. Oxios. Oxios literally means equal weight. When was the last time you weighed yourself? Maybe you guys want to weigh yourself, but you, you weigh yourself, right? And, and there's a scale, this image of scale that Paul is drawing out and, and, and how these two objects on each side must balance the scale. It's got to be equal weight. Both objects must be equal weight. So Paul says on one side of the scale is this wonderful reality of the gospel and the other side of the scale is your life. And he says your life and the gospel must balance out, must be equal. So what is Paul saying? In Ephesians and also in Philippi, in the book of Philippians, is he saying it is our job to live up to the standard of the gospel? And I've heard that kind of preaching. Growing up, I've heard that preaching a lot from my youth pastors, my college pastors, right? If you don't get your act together, if you, if you don't do the right things and follow all the rules, you're going to bring shame to the name of Jesus. But if that's the message, then we are all in serious trouble. I mean, we recognize that. If that's the message, if we have to live up to the quality of the life that Jesus lived and death he died, we're all in trouble. Because we don't have the ability to live up to that standard on our own. So if that's not what Paul, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. If that's not what Paul is challenging us to do when he says, live your life worthy of the gospel, then what does he really mean? Let's go back to this image of the scale, oxios. You see, scale has the ability to measure one's weight. But it also has the ability to balance weight of two different objects. So I believe what Paul is saying is this. The gospel is the good news about how Jesus came to balance the scale for us. Because we could not measure up. Jesus came to do that for us. We who are living in sin and darkness have seen the great light. And it's His righteousness, it's His faithfulness, His forgiveness, His death on the cross is that, that is what has lifted us up. So challenge that Paul is giving is not for us to live up to the standard of the gospel, but it is what? It is to live out of the reality of the gospel. Small distinction, but very important. Because, because the gospel is the only way, right? Through the gospel is the only way we can live the life that God has called us to do. In fact, what, what Paul is saying in, this, in, in verse 27 is the gospel is the only true motive and the model of how you and I should conduct ourselves in all manners. So this is what really Paul is encouraging us to do in verse 27. Let the gospel be your main motive and model of everything you do. 
This is why if you've noticed here at King's Cross, every sermon that is preached from this pulpit or this table concludes with what? With presentation of the gospel. It's like literally every week, myself or Pastor John, we repeat what the gospel is. We tell you this is the gospel. That's how we conclude every sermon. And if you've been with us for more than a month, you know where you know by the time I say this is the gospel, you know, okay, it's time to pack up. We're ready, we're ready to go. Sermon's coming to an end. But we do that not because there are no other creative ways to end your sermon or there are no other applications. We land at the gospel and we take communion because that's the only thing that will bring true transformation. You know, 15 years of ministry. I've preached a lot of things, and I preach a lot of different ways, and I realize only way people really change is not, be, not because I, I tell them to change or not because I give these profound quotes or, or these and this. No, it's really when people understand what Christ has done for them, the power of the gospel, that's the only reason we, we change. It's the table that we come to at the end of every service. And if you think about it, Paul had every right to Say something more, right? Verse 27, Paul could have said, only let your manner be worthy of my example. I've lived a good life. I'm in prison for the sake of the gospel. Paul could have said, just make sure you're worthy of my life. He could have said, only let your manner be worthy of the future promises, future reward that you will receive in Christ. Or he could have said, only let your manner be worthy of our commi- your commitment that you made in Christ before you came to Him, right? But He doesn't say any of those things. Why? Again, because we're not saved by anything but what Christ has done. So again, the gospel must be the motive and the model of everything we do. In fact, Paul talks about this even more extensively in his other letter, in the book of Romans, a much more theological letter that Paul writes. In chapters 1 to 3, this is really Paul's main thesis point, right? Paul points out there are two enemies of the gospel, right? Two distorted ways that we all humans relate to God. And in Romans 1, 18 to 32, Paul speaks about the pagan Gentiles who have disregarded the law, who disregarded following the rules, Right? They, they, who were anti-law. And then Paul goes in chapter 2 to chapter 3 talking about the Jews that are abiding the law. And, and, and Paul says there are two sinners, law-abiding sinners and law-breaking sinners. And how both the law-abiders and the law-breakers reject God in their own ways. Law-abiding sinners, legal, legalists. Legalism says we can put God in our debt. If we do everything that God tells us to, God's going to owe us, right? And procure, procure His blessing with our goodness. If we do everything right, God's going to bless us. God owes us because we have been good. We've done everything right. God has to owe us. That's what legalism does to you. On the other side of the coin, it's relativism, irreligious. This idea that rules are not important. The law is not important, right? Relativism says we don't need to obey the law. God, uh, God loves me. God accepts me as I am. 
He only wants me to be myself. I think often what the preaching we hear today is, you know, it's not that important. Doing all the right things is not that important. You know, we, we cheapen grace by ignoring the law. And law is good. Law is not bad. Jesus said it. Jesus came to fulfill the law. You see, both legalism and relativism reveal the true tendency, tendency of human heart. Remember Genesis 3, where this all started, right? Before Genesis 3, we were living in a good place, one wonderful garden. God has set everything up for us. And then Adam and Eve decides that we're going to take the one thing God says not to take. What was the lie in that garden? Genesis 3. What was the lie that serpent tried to tell Adam and Eve? It's simple. God told you not to eat this fruit because He doesn't want you to fully experience life. He doesn't really want you to experience true life. That's a lie. In fact, Genesis 3, 5, the serpent told Adam and Eve that disobedience to God will be liberating and completely eye-opening. Literally, you will be able to see like God, which wasn't true at all. Sinclair Ferguson, a, a, a theologian, Respected theologian says, and I quote, Since that time in the garden, humanity bought into this very lie. God is unloving and he doesn't want us to enjoy life. And this very lie entered humanity as default heart condition. That's what Sinclair says. He says, this lie at the garden has entered into each of us as default heart condition." Now, at the bottom of our souls, whether we follow God's law or not, whether you are legalist or relativist, human beings do not trust God. We do not trust God's goodwill towards us. You see, both legalism and relativism, though it seems very opposite externally, op it seems like they stand on the opposite side of each other, yet if you really get to the heart of it, they find their root from the same lie. It's the same lie in Genesis 3. Here's Pastor Keller, Tim Keller. He says this about the subject, and I quote, Legalism stems from the unbelief that we will have to pry, pry blessings out of God's begrudging, unwilling fingers with all sort of observance, performances. Whereas... Relativism assumes the same grasping, ungenerous, and hard God whose commands cannot be seen as given for our benefit. In both cases, the law of God is viewed not as an expression of His gracious love, rather as a burden and a necessary tool for mollifying an unloving God. End quote. Pastor Keller calls legalism and relativism these two ways we often relate to God, we try to relate to God, as non-identical twins from the same womb. This is why Paul concludes that section in Romans chapter 3, talking about the legalists and relativists, and at the end, his conclusion in that section is what? In, in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks God. And, and Paul goes on for the rest of the book of Romans from chapter 4 on explaining it's actually only the gospel. Only the gospel is true remedy. Not following the rules and not breaking the rules, but it's only through what Jesus has done. 
So friends, the gospel is the only thing that will deliver you and I from the lie of the serpent. Right? Yes, we came to Christ, we believe in Christ, we've been transformed by Christ, but these lies exist in all areas of our lives. If we're really honest about our relationship with God, often we fall into this lie, God is not loving, God doesn't want us to fully experience life. When you, when you come to the gospel, when you come to the table, when you come to what Christ has done, it's very clear that God is loving. And He's so loving that He was willing to give His one and only Son for us, to die for us. And this is why these seven words in Philippians chapter 1 are so important and life-giving for us. Only let your manners be worthy of the gospel. Only let your manners be worthy of the gospel. But how does that look practically? I mean, we've been talking about theory, Greek. You're like, oh my goodness, so much going on. Well, how does that look practically? That, that the gospel is the main motive and the model of our lives. I'll give you one example, right? How verse 27 is lived out in our lives. Let's talk about marriage. Many of us are married. Many, many of us are wanting to get married. We've seen bad marriages, right? If the gospel is not the mod, motive and the model of our marriage or your future marriage, you know what's going to happen? We're going to make our marriage an endless game of blaming the other person. If you approach our marriage in the view of legalism, I want truth, no grace, truth. Right? The most important thing in your marriage is not about serving and loving your spouse. No, it's about maintaining what? Maintaining a good self-image at all costs. The most effective way to do that is by pointing our fingers at the other person. Right? I've struggled with this early part of my marriage, right? I believed I was a good person. I believed I was such a great guy. And I married this woman from Australia and she is driving me mad. But the truth is, I could not get over the fact that I wasn't perfect. I could not get over the fact that I was actually an idiot sometimes. Said dumb things, did dumb things. But I could not, whenever, you know, Lois lovingly approached me, I would be like, no, this is not true. Because I'm a good guy. I'm a pastor. I'm awesome. So you're terrible. It's your fault. But that's the legalist way of looking at marriage. If relativism becomes the main mode of our marriage, you know what happens? Marriage will be always about negotiating and fighting for your own benefits and rights. I need you to do this. I want someone like this. And when the cost feels too great, and if you feel like you're always getting the wrong end of the stick, what, what are you going to do? You want to give up. It's easy to give up because at the end of the day, marriage isn't about love and sacrifice. It is about getting what you want out of it. I've been there too. It's, it's, it's so easy to say, oh, well, well, we'll just find someone else because it's not working. You see, only the gospel leads you and I to do neither. The gospel allows you and I to truly love our spouse your love is not driven by this constant need to convince yourself and others that you are good and capable and accepted. And it's only the gospel that provides a safe space 
to confront and challenge each other, yet remain committed. Because marriage is not about getting your spouse to do what you want. Can I get an amen, everybody? Marriage is not about getting your spouse to do what you want. That's what we think what marriage is. It's about, it's, 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 it's not about fulfilling your desires and dreams. Marriage at the core is about two becoming one. That's what God said. Two will become one. Two kingdoms will collide and become one. You know what, you know what happens when two kingdoms try to become one? Someone got to die. There is death that needs to be lived out. It requires death. That requires hard work. That requires becoming more like our Savior, willing to die. That's just one area that we're talking about. Imagine how radically our lives will change if we apply the gospel into every area of our lives, not just marriage. Can you, can you imagine what that will look like? I mean, it's hard. I've tried this week. It's terribly hard. It's so hard. But if, if it does, this will radically change the way we think about work. So many, so many of us hate work. I sit down with you. You're just like, oh, I hate my boss. I hate work. Change the way we think about our community. Change the way we think about our church. Change the way we, we talk to our children. Sometimes I catch myself talking to my daughters and I'm like, what? who is this jerk? I'm literally, I have these like out-of-body experience. I hear myself, I'm like, what a jerk. Like, I, I, I catch myself, literally, right? I mean, parenting is hard. And I, I literally think, man, I am terrible dad sometimes. This is not good for my children. The girls meet these terrible guys. Oh, like my mind goes all the way there. It's like terrible. And I repent. I'm like, Lord, help me. But it, it will, guys. It will radically change everything about our lives if we would just apply the gospel, right? Listen to Paul in verse 28. This is what Paul says. When your motive and model of life is the gospel, whether I come and see you or hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit. Striving together as one for the faith of gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. You're not going to be afraid. You're going to be united. You're going to be in the spirit. I mean, Paul says, it can be all good if you are willing to conduct yourselves in the manner of the gospel. So friends, if only you and I We'll continue to deepen ourselves in the truth of the gospel. Because right? we, we come to church, we get to know Christ, we take these classes, Discipleship 101, Discipleship 201, and then you take these classes, Freedom in Christ, all these wonderful things. And then we say things like, I got to level up as a Christian. I got I to gotta, I gotta get the better knowledge. I got to know how to speak in tongue. I got to, all of these things, right? Friends, there is no leveling up in Christianity. Let me tell you very clearly, there's only one way to, to level up in Christianity. It's to allow yourself to be soaked in the truth of the gospel. No one, none of us graduate the gospel. You could be a Christian for a year, Christian for 10 years, 20 years, and none of us. Gospel is not just when we enter our faith. It is actually the way we progress in the faith. 
You know, we've, we've come this afternoon, you know, nicely dressed. Most of us nicely dressed. Some of us casual, nicely dressed, with smiles on our face, even though we can't tell because of masks. Yet I could, I could imagine the type of challenges, tragedies, pain that you've carried into this room. I know, I know, I know a lot of them. Some, some, some of them I don't know what you're carrying to this place. You may be smiling, maybe wearing our best Sunday's best, yet you know, I, I don't know, but you know you're struggling with some real hard, difficult things in life. For some of us, our marriage is on the rocks. For others of us, it's our emotional health. It's our physical health. Perhaps it's parenting, as I shared. Parenting is on the rocks. Perhaps it's fear of others, fear of the future, fear of failure in something. We've all come to this place to be inspired. I mean, you had a choice this morning. You could have just been on YouTube and just watched a little bit and said, oh, I went to church. But no, you've decided, you've signed up, you've gone through the protocol, you've sat here socially distancing when the number's like 3,000, not to scare you, but yes, you've made a commitment to be here and you came Yes, to see friends, to see each other, to allow your children to experience kids' ministry, but to be inspired, to be uplifted, to grasp some sense of direction to get back on the right path because you believe maybe this will help. If that's you, you've come to the right place. Friends, you've come to the right place. And now here, once again, the gospel of Christ. Let me end our time by reminding you God created you and I to serve and enjoy Him and His creation. But we have turned away. We've sinned and fallen short of His glory. That's what Genesis 3 event did. Yet God, out of His loving kindness, He sent His one and only Son into the world as one of us. And His Son, Jesus Christ, lived the perfect life that we could not live. He died the death that you and I deserved. He satisfied the law, right? The law is good and Jesus came to fulfill the law. He satisfied the law by living sinless life. He satisfied the wrath of God for dying for our sins. Therefore, it doesn't matter what you have done, what you have not done. It doesn't matter how you have lived, how you have not lived. You are welcome to this place. You're welcome to the table. Friends, we're going to go into time of communion. And this, again, is the highlight and, and the main reason why we, we're here. Right? Every time we come to partake in His body and His blood, every time we hold these elements in our hands, we're declaring God's victory over death. We come to the table with our fears and failures, yet Jesus says, I've won. Death has been indeed defeated. We come to the table with our burdens and weight of life, and they are heavy for many of us. And Jesus says, I'm your rest. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. We come to the table with our sins and shame, and Jesus says, I have washed you clean. And as far as east is from the west, that's far, guys. East from the west that blows my mind 
that He has removed your sin from you. Friends, this is Jesus' body given for you. Let's partake together in His grace.